Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Devin Campbell, who has worked in many different engineering roles, from design engineer to engineering manager to senior director, and is currently running his own consultancy called Product. That's P-R-O-D-C-T. Did I pronounce it correctly, Devin? Yeah, you did. Great job. Okay, perfect. So welcome to the podcast, Devin. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and excited to talk with you. First question, why know you in product? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's, there's no... This must be a U of A thing, right? That's how they teach grammar there. Not, it's not a U of A thing. <laughs> um, you know, th- there's really no clever answer to the question. Um, I really focus uh, my advisory practice um, on helping people think through all the infrastructure that you need to be able to do product development really well. And it's all about product development. So I know I needed that name somewhere in the title uh, when I was trying to figure out what to call uh, this thing, this this adventure that I've been on for the last two years. And uh, I'm a big kayaker. I'm a mountain biker. I kept looking for analogies with respect to those different sports and and, and things that you would use and equipment that you would use. It has like an engineering tone to it um, that helps kind of steer you in the right direction or, you know, things like rudders or, or aspects of a kayak. Uh, and all of it just kind of felt forced to me. And ultimately, I came down to, you know, as simple is better. And what do I really focus on? It's product development. So simplified the name product, but just product itself uh, seemed too basic. So I just I dropped the U out of it, and it's P R O D C T, uh, and product.dev is the website, so it it kind of works and speaks really clearly to what it is that we do. And it's memorable. I mean, I'm not gonna forget product with no U. Yeah. That's for sure. I've tried to think of clever ways to say, well, you know, we take you know U out of the product development process, but that's you know that's not right, and you know you need to be part of it. That's that's the whole that's the whole point. So. Um, I haven't tried to do anything cute with it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So speaking of product.dev, um, the website is very minimalist. Yeah. What's, what's the strategy behind that? So <clears throat> pretty much all of our work has been through word of mouth and through e- either the, the C-suite network uh, that I am involved within um, or advisory, uh, other advisory groups that I'm I'm supporting, um, or the venture capitalists that support a lot of the emerging entrepreneurs uh, that I uh, try to focus my business on supporting. And all of that work has been sufficient to keep us more than uh, flush with uh, opportunities to help really cool emerging entrepreneurs in, um, in this technology development space. So we haven't really needed to do much um, I know I needed to have some kind of landing page, uh, you know, do event, do oper- uh, podcasts like this or, or others, um, the Global Medical Device Podcast or MedTech True Quality Stories and others where people hear me uh, and they hear us talking about product and they needed to have some landing sites. So I just put something really simple there. Uh, whether it grows into more someday, it may, um, but for right now, I've, I've kept it pretty, pretty minimalist. Uh, by the time you've reached that website, uh, you already have a pretty good inkling in your head that uh, there might be something that 
uh, my firm can do to help you and reaching out to support and, uh, and, and it goes from there. Got it. That makes sense. Um, so it's almost like you're, you're not hurting for work. Certainly you're, you're almost kind of tempering it with the, the minimalist aspect there. Yeah. I mean, it would help obviously to, to help other people kind of understand what we do as a company. Um, but generally since it's all word of mouth, I already have those referrals in place. Um, and we, we get very limited work, although we have had some just kind of cold calling, reaching out for support. And we're happy to uh, deploy some resources to help talk with those people. Um, but for the most part, we haven't really needed to advance the website that much. And of course, they say all of that with a huge caveat that, uh, you know, what would it hurt? for me to go ahead and, and have us update it uh, additionally more. You know, it could just drive additional business. Um, we may do that in the, in the near future, but right, right now and for the last two years, we haven't really needed to do that. Well, simple is great too. I mean, simple is less to deal with, less to break, less to fix, right? Um, That's great. I mean, that, that keep it simple philosophy uh, permeates through everything that we do as engineers. So it kind of speaks to your brand even. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Uh, you also have the devincampbell.com website where it goes into a little bit more information about you yourself. One thing I read there that was really interesting is, uh, I guess you're into photography to some extent. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, I think I, I kind of introduced myself a little bit on that, uh, devincampbell.com website. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like to, uh, to take a lot of pictures um, I have an eye toward, uh, I am a mechanical design engineer, uh, by, by training and by practice. Uh, so a lot of my photography is of, uh, gears and there's a lot of symmetry involved. There's a lot of roundness and, and parallel lines. Uh, it just kind of speaks to me as an engineer and I find a lot of beauty in, in design and in the simplicity of design. So I, I like to take pictures of that when I'm, out and about and it's all just random stuff i don't purposefully go out looking for things i'll just i'll be riding the subway um i'll see i'll see something that that speaks to me and i'll, I'll take a picture of it um, try to line it up as best i can uh, i do very minimal post-processing uh, but i do have uh, an an affinity toward uh, black and white do you prefer to use your phone for the most part, or do you have some heavier gear that you take around with you on occasion? I have heavier gear, but I don't typically take it around with me since it's always when the moment strikes and and I see something, I go, wow, that's really, that's that's cool how, like, like there's a tractor out in the field behind my house, and I found it kind of in the woods, and, you know, I just have my phone on me. It's not like I'm walking around with my big DSR, so... Uh, the Canon, for the most part, just stays on the shelf, and I end up doing a lot with my with my phone. Yeah, the the best camera is the one you have at the moment, yeah, right? Exactly. I started a photography company many years ago with a friend of mine, and we actually ran it for four or five years. And so I I am also a lover of photography. Sounds like you're in uh, into the Canon gear. What what Canon camera do you have? Oh, I have I have an old. Um, I don't know it's probably ten years old. It's a, what is it, EOS Rebel or something like that. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great yeah. one. So yeah. <laughs> I, have a, I have a minimal set of, of lenses that I swap, that I would swap in and out. But uh, like I said, it's, it's spending more time gathering dust than it does 
uh, <laughs> these days. I mean, the, the cameras in the, in our phones are just. I purposely buy my phone only for the camera capabilities, to be quite honest. So I'll. I'll and what what phone are you I've using? I've been using iPhones for long for quite a while. Um, but like when the seven first came out, I got the big giant seven, even though I hated carrying around this brick, this HD TV against the side of my head. Um, <laughs> I did it because it had a better camera. And, and the, the software that they have to create the bokeh, the blurred background, it's, it's gorgeous. They really have done a great job. Yeah. With it. Yeah. It does a nice job. Oh, I had something I was going to say. What was it? Oh, it was the, the rebel. I just had to mention this. Uh, that's where I started as yeah. well with a rebel. And, uh, again, just like yours, it's, it's over 10 years old at this point. But with, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this during the whole, um, uh, quarantine period. And so kids are home. And my wife and I, we, we took out the old rebel. I don't think anyone has used it for probably, I don't know, six or eight years. And it's working like a champ. Yeah. The kids are, are taking pictures and learning Photoshop. And I mean, I was really impressed with how it still works flawlessly. Yeah. I like how much control you can get using, uh, you know, a camera that's meant to be a camera, not just a phone. Do you think that part of photography that appeals to engineers is the technical aspect? You know, there's there's dialing in the lighting and there's the aperture and the ISO and the frame rate and, and all that stuff. Did, did the technical aspect appeal to you or was it really just the artistic side? Honestly, it was the artistic side. Um when I went to school, I got my bachelor's and master's both in mechanical engineering, uh, but I also took uh, enough um, courses uh, within the creative writing program to have a minor in creative writing. So there's always been um, this this air of creativity balanced with uh, the, the the strict technical nature of, of what we do professionally. Um, and I think the two can blend really well. Um, but in photography, I like to use the creativity as a way to showcase the technical, but I'm not geeking out over the technical of the photography gear itself. Um, I, I get more excited by uh, taking a good look at the, the gear or the valve or, or whatever it is that I'm finding out in nature um, or, yeah. or out in just in the environment. That's great. That's great. I know we're uh, on a podcast about engineering, so thanks for humoring me and, and sure, talking no about problem. photography for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's dive into the engineering. Um, you started out working at, uh, what was it, Ventana? Yeah. Uh, that was one of the first, okay. And and pretty quickly kind of climbed the ladder and within, I think it was about 10 years, had gone from a, uh, a design engineer to a director level. Is that accurate? Yeah, Um I would, I would layer in the additional perspective that I went out of my way to find engineering roles uh, while in college. And throughout my bachelor's and my master's, uh, I was working in um, engineering disciplines. Of course, I wasn't working as, a, as an actual engineer at that point. But I was fortunate enough, uh, for example, during my undergraduate uh, to work at the Stewart Observatory Mirror Lab uh, at the University of Arizona, where the world's largest telescope mirrors were cast and polished. And it's a great kind of engineering wonderland. And I was fortunate enough to have a boss there who uh, took an interest in kind of molding me as an engineer. 
and we say, okay, well, what are you taking this semester? And I'm taking uh, maybe thermodynamics and computational fluid, you know, dynamics, something like that. And so, okay, great. Well, he'd give me two projects to work on that are in that space. Um, so now I'm maybe I'm taking an optics class that so would give me some work. There's a lot of optics there. He'd give me some work in, in, in the optics space, helping design inferometers and things like that. And using the tools uh, back then, it was uh, you know, earlier Pro-E um, that I was using. But it really kind of gave me an opportunity to get a feel for what it was like and to work with professional engineers. So that by the time I finished uh, my bachelor's and master's and started working at Ventana, um, I had already had, let's see, five, six years of kind of experience in that space. So it, it kind of gave me a big leg up on, on jumping into the this work environment and being able to make an immediate impact and kind of understanding uh, how you design things. And, and where I worked at the Mirror Lab, I, I not only designed it, but then I had to go down to the machine shop and learn how to machine it myself and how to program the CNCs and how to run them and whether I'm running a bridge a bridge port or you know a, a manual mill or a lathe um, it gave me that unique opportunity to kind of learn how to best design something for manufacturability because i had to go and manufacture it so i learned you know what stupid things not to do um, and i think that allowed me it was one of the factors that allowed me to perform so well and uh, gain additional responsibility uh, at such a, a non-linear pace uh, once I started working at Ventana. Okay, so what I'm hearing is uh, one of, if not the biggest factor in allowing you to advance so rapidly was the fact that you already had some of this previous experience working part-time when you were a student mm -hmm. at a few different places, and also uh, you had experience uh, working in a machine shop, maybe not like as a you know a full time machinist apprentice or anything like that, but you you understood manufacturing to the point where uh, you could you could design something with uh, design for manufacturing in mind. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And and was um, climbing the ladder to kind of that managerial or director uh, level role was that always kind of Part of the goal, or did that just happen organically? It was totally not part of the goal. Um, <laughs> so I, I think <laughs> let me answer that question, but I'll 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 dive into the kind of the second aspect I think that allowed me to um, perform well and and ultimately realize all the successes I've been fortunate enough to have. Um, I was never satisfied as a design engineer um, to sit in my office and. Uh, design something up in CAD, do some modeling, do some, uh, you know, as a true engineer should, um, think through the aspects of the design in a vacuum. I always wanted to understand who all of my downstream customers were. And when I say customers, I don't mean ultimately the person who is using or the person who's buying the product, but I mean everyone from the quality engineers that have to review the documentation that I generate. Uh, and, and, and approve it. Um, the manufacturing engineers who have to help create the manufacturing lines to, or the manufacturing work instructions to help build whatever it was that I came up with. Yet you have a lot of responsibility as a design engineer, very high upstream 
to make sure that what you're designing and developing meets the needs of a lot of different key stakeholders. And I liked understanding that holistic picture. So I would do things when I was working at Ventana, like you know, ask to go out onto the manufacturing line. And, and I don't want to stand over the people building stuff with my arms crossed and just watching and shaking, you know, nodding my head every once in a while saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, oh, I like what they're doing. No, I wanted to get trained the way they got trained. I wanted to go through the same programs. I wanted to sit on the manufacturing line for a few weeks and learn what it's like to be in that space. Uh, I did the same thing to understand what are the ramifications and, and what do the field service engineers have to work, deal with. So I asked because we were fortunately everything was in in house where I was. We didn't outsource really anything. So I had the opportunity to say, all right, I want to go shadow a field service engineer for uh, two weeks. And so they sent me. It actually turned out to be the East Coast. They sent me out to, and I stayed with a very senior um, engineer to understand, you know, what their life was like out here and what kind of decisions do I make in way upstream in the in the development space uh, to allow them make their lives a, a nightmare or make it really easy for them and took those learnings take that brought it back taught my team what i what i learned out in the field so that we can all do a better job to meet everyone's needs not just uh, the end user and i think that holistic approach uh, allowed me to live in other people's shoes, understand what it takes to walk, not just a mile, but several miles in those shoes, and then be able to come back and design a better shoe uh, to allow them to do that job better. Um, so that coupled with, you know, having a little bit of a, of a head start on, on understanding what the environment would be like uh, before I started there, I think those two things coupled really allowed me to progress quickly. Now, I love being an engineer. Um, and you, you asked, I'm going to answer that question now. You asked about my ability to, uh, whether it was organic or it was, it was part of the plan. Um, I love being a mechanical engineer, and my intent had been the entire time, you know, I really like doing what I do. I like understanding the holistic picture. I like coming up with things in my, in my head. I like designing them. I like doing the engineering analysis to make sure that what I'm designing is elegant and clean and simple but straightforward and easy to use and not too much material, but just enough material. Um, I love thinking through all of that piece of it. And really my sense of self-identity was of that of a design engineer. And it just so happened that because I had done so much work to understand the holistic picture that uh, the team, the management team that I worked with, and I had some amazing um, mentors and 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 advisors and bosses in, in that space saw that I could do more and actually approached me at one point and said, hey, Devin, we're going to pull you up out of engineering and we want to put you in these other roles where you'll be in charge of engineering, but you'll also have a lot of other responsibilities um, that aren't just pure engineering. And I, when your company asks you to do something, you sit I've always had the philosophy like, okay, yeah, well, I'll do it because they've asked me to, but I didn't like it. You know, I came home and I was like, I, I really don't like the way this is going. Uh, this is going to lead me more as a manager or I didn't mind being a manager of engineers, but to be director of product development and be in charge of all the product development and, and all aspects of, of a design um, 
through development and commercialization and service and support and everything else, I was not excited about that. But they had they had faith and they kind of taught me um, to, to have some confidence in, in their ability to see what I could do and put me in, in that environment and gave me the right support that I need. And I ended up finding as much as I kind of fought it tooth and nail, I ended up finding out that I was really good at it. And I think a big piece of that had been because I'm an engineer and I look at the way that we're trained to look at really big problems and break them down and to analyze things and, and to uh, move forward in a meticulous and kind of thoughtful way uh, allowed me to take that style of thinking and apply it to broader product development themes. Um, and I, I ended up actually really liking that side of the that side of the space. And I've kind of been on that that more senior leadership side of the spectrum uh, kind of ever since. Okay, here's an, another question for you, and this is not um, this is not within the context of of Devin Campbell. This is a more general context here. It it seems to me like oftentimes uh, there is an incentive, whether it's prestige or financial incentives, for an engineer to. Uh, move up into some sort of managerial or director role. And, uh, you know, that, that's great. Uh, I have a little bit of a problem with it when, um, someone who's really good at engineering and maybe isn't going to be great at managing people gets plucked from the engineering pool and placed into an, a managerial role simply because that individual is very good at engineering and the assumption becomes well if he's that good of an engineer he's going to be he's going to make a, a great engineering manager what 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 do you think about that is is that a legitimate assumption uh or not i would say absolutely not um you i have had the pleasure of working with some amazing engineers, just brilliant engineers, and they're great at doing what they're doing. But they are, you have to have the intellectual side, but you also have to have the emotional intelligence side. And to be a really strong manager, um, or at least maybe manager might be, might be um, a different aspect, but if, if you're talking like director, senior director, or VP level, um, you have to have a, a very strong appreciation for the human side of engineering. Um, and we don't always necessarily have that. One thing that I've done uh, with companies that I've um, run the development for, when we have, when I've had engineers that are just brilliant engineers and they want to do more, and they think, well, I'm a great engineer, it put me into management. Um, is I've often kind of coached them toward a fellowship type role. And in two different cases, I had to kind of go and create that side to help people understand there is a role that a very senior level engineer can play that is still a leadership role, but it's not a managerial role, but it is a leader of other engineers. Um, and to try to create like an engineering fellow and senior fellow type um, type roles within an organization so that people have the opportunity to see that these it's not that there's a ceiling that you're butted up butted up against and you can't go anywhere unless you go into the managerial side it's not the case 
I think even really outstanding engineers that don't have great people skills uh, could still um, grow and evolve and have more responsibility and add amazing value to organizations as leaders of other engineers to kind of help mold younger engineers that come in, help teach them the way that we do design and development at whatever the company is, um, help them appreciate the value of your experience by you know, sharing it with them. Um, that's a really valuable asset and you don't have to be a manager or a director to do all that. Um, so yeah, that that's a really interesting approach. Um, so it's almost like a quasi uh, manager. We can't really use that word really to describe it. But and this gets into a little bit of your 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 coaching or consultancy aspect with product. Uh, how how does a company go about implementing that sort of role? Um, given that they they probably probably already have an engineering manager but they have this really seasoned really talented uh engineer that they want to step into that quasi leadership role how do you implement that um that that engineer leader role so i mean the way that i've done it is to develop uh two different tracks so that you know everyone can see a forward looking trajectory that they might be able to follow and your, gl your glide path might be on the managerial side, or your glide path might be that you're interested more in staying purely technical, uh, and, and you, you, you don't want to be involved in the, in the managerial side of things with performance reviews and all the other stuff that comes along with that. Um, or maybe it might be that you, you think you want that, but your organization says, you know what, you're probably going to add more value for us on the, on the technical track. But to create two of those and show on those um, those different evolution charts to say, all right, well, you can start as an engineer, but eventually at some point you can branch and you can start to go this management way or you can start to go this technical leadership way. And I would demonstrate that the salary ranges are the same depending on both both tracks that you're taking. Um, mm, you know, yes. Because that's important to make sure that, because a lot of people think, well, I can only get more money if I become a manager or a director. And I say, no, that's not, not the case in the situations that I've uh, put in place. So you, you can be an engineering fellow and you can get paid the same as uh, you know, a senior director if you're a senior fellow. Uh, my expectations and the company's expectations of you are different, but there's still very high level expectations. You know, one is much more on the strategic side. How do we take the company and the product in one direction? Uh, what kind of team do we need? But the other one is really that mentor and that role model and that coach for the team. And you need those people and you have to pay them appropriately. Uh, at least that's been, that's been my experience. But by sending out two tracks in place, it really is liberating and frees you up as an engineer to see, all right, well, I don't have this single path that I have to follow, which is all just, you know, engineer, senior engineer, manager, you know, senior manager, director, senior director, VP. It doesn't have to be that track. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I agree 100% that there shouldn't be um, this like monetary or just prestige-based um, uh, benefit to going into a manager. You should be able to to receive the same, you know, recognition as being a really good engineer that the the prestige shouldn't be associated with uh, 
leadership necessarily. It should be associated with being really good at, at what you do. Now, of course, there are limits to that. A, a really, really good janitor is never going to make as much money as a really, really good engineer. But um, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, so let's, let's get into product a little bit more. Um, we talked about your, your coaching and, uh, let, let's say that I, I have, uh, I don't know, a startup company. Do you work with mostly startups or do you work with uh, more established companies as well? Uh, so we focus our attention primarily on, um, emerging entrepreneurs and earlier stage companies, um, you know, you might have an A round closed or a B or maybe even be working on a C. Um, but for the most part, we don't target uh, companies that are, you know, huge multinational companies because they've already got tons of engineers and, and, and tons of development work that's happening. We have supported uh, larger companies, especially when they're looking for um, kind of external perspectives on things. Uh, but our, our target, uh, our target audience really is, is that more of emerging entrepreneurs and earlier stage companies. Cause we really like to get in right at the very beginning and help this first time CTO and first time COO or, you know, it could be, uh, you know, two folks that just finished their PhD and they decided to start a company with some technology that, um, that she developed and, uh, that they're and they're moving forward with something, but they've really never developed a product that's gonna you know, go out into the marketplace and need to be successful. Uh, so we'd like to help those very early stage companies, and there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement in that space. Uh, so it's just a it's a place that we we enjoy uh, working with it. Yeah. Okay, so focusing on young startup stage companies, let's say I'm one of those. I've got this new product. It's going to change the world. We just need to get it developed and onto market. I come to you and say, Devin, we're, you know, we've got a pretty good team. We've got 10 or 20 people here. Um, I'm a first time CTO, CEO. What, what happens next? So um, the first thing that we'll have to do uh, when we come in is, is to understand what your long term goal is with whatever it is you're developing. Uh, one thing I think it's probably important for listeners to understand, uh, my entire career, um, other than uh, some small optics work that I did uh, while in school, um, my entire career has been in uh, medical diagnostic devices and therapeutics. Um, so everything that I've done has been FDA, uh, kind of under FDA jurisdiction. Um, in some cases, when it's not, it's still a life science tool. It's doing uh, R&D work. So it's a very specific skill set and, and niche market that we try to go after and support. But that specific market has a lot of expectations of you downstream. So if you think you're going to be bringing this new um, diagnostic device or this new therapeutic or an implantable or something to market someday, you're going to have to deal with regulators. Um, so I like to understand what is it you're trying to do with your product? What markets do you want to sell it into? Who are the people that you're trying to help uh, with it? Once we understand that, that aspect of, of the product, uh, I like to focus because we're highly technical. We, we focus very deeply on the science behind what they're doing, uh, which is fun in the biotech space. Um, 
so to understand how that works, and then to try to marry that science and that deep technical understanding of what they're doing with product requirements. And I like to think through first, what are your user requirements? What are your user needs? Um, it's good business practice to do it anyway, but in the medical um, device industry, uh, whether you're ISO 13, you're developing something under an ISO 13485 compliant quality system, or if you expect to get FDA approval someday on something, um, you know, there are certain things that you have to have in place. So we'll start to interrogate the work that had been done to date to understand where is there uh, some gaps. And there's been times where I'll start working with the company and we'll start diving into it and realize, you know, there aren't, um, you know, there's no documented product requirements anywhere. There's no user needs and then product requirements, you know, that are evolving from those user needs. Uh, and then ultimately they would evolve into product specifications and software specifications, and everything else that we need to do. So we'll kind of look backwards and say, well, what should we have done to get to, you know, to get to where we are right now? And what kind of gap analysis do we need to put in place uh, and, and gap mitigations to put in place to bring us up to speed with where we should be knowing what our long-term goal is. And if you're thinking in two or three years from now, I think I want to sell this device in the US, um, in Mexico, and in Europe. Okay, well, fine. Those are three different regulatory agencies. There's three different expectations. There's safety certification you have to do. So we'll start kind of teasing in what are those things that we need to do now so that by the time you are done with product development, you've done some verification and validation, you think you've got a good product, you're not starting over from scratch and saying, okay, let's go get FDA approval, when in reality you should have been doing things in a certain way and documenting certain things um, from the very beginning. Right, so you right. have to backfill. And, and it's, it can be done, and a lot of companies do it. It's just really expensive to hire consultants sure. to come in and help you recreate a design history file um, at the end, rather than have, having built it in little pieces in, in an inexpensive way from the very beginning, because you had someone help teach you about the importance of doing it, uh, you know, in that step-by-step -step way. So not necessarily specific to the medical device industry, but product development, engineering in general, what are some of the uh, the big obstacles that you've seen in, in these smaller startup companies and what uh, what strategies have you shared with them or what strategies might someone who's not even working with you but maybe just listening to this podcast consider to overcome those those obstacles? Well, I think one piece that we touched on it before is, is to keep a really open mind and think holistically about what it is that you do uh, as an engineer, but also if you're if you're an early stage company and maybe you the engineer are one of the early, you know early leaders for the organization. To think holistically through all aspects, the entire life cycle of your product, who's going to be touching it, who needs to review it, who needs to approve it, how does it get manufactured, all of that allows you, if you think strategically for, for the long-term play, it allows you to do the near-term steps in a very careful and thoughtful way. And I think that we as engineers are trained do that well. And it doesn't matter whether it's the product development for medical devices or 
you know, if you were, were developing mice or um, or lamps or doorknobs or anything or you know auto body components, knowing that holistic taking that holistic view really allows you to meet the needs of your stake of your downstream stakeholders and and if you're building up a company, it allows you to build value in the company by demonstrating to people, whether they're VCs or you know potential partners, that you have an appreciation for that whole uh, the whole environment in which your your product is ultimately going to go into. That's that's solid advice. I'm going to give you a thousand points for that answer. I'll take those Thank thousand. You. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> what uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that you personally have at work? Um, at work now or at work um, in my past? Take your pick. Um, you know, there's an interesting dynamic when I made this shift from working 20-some years in uh, product development, working for one company at a time, you know, working on one product at a time, using one technology at a time, to trying to make this pivot into this role where you're doing advisory work for lots of companies kind of at the same time. And it's really not that much different than working on several projects internal to a company at one time. I mean, you just have to still kind of manage all of that. But it took me a little bit of time to do the mental gymnastics to kind of get my brain wrapped around um, shifting gears and going from uh, one technology and, and one company that I'm working with in the morning to in the afternoon working with another. I've I've learned, I've come to learn that I find it invigorating and I really enjoy it. Um, but that has been kind of a, not even really a challenge, just been more kind of an interesting observation in making this pivot. And it gives you not just different technology and different uh, companies to work within, but you're working with different people as well. And I have found I do everything I can with our organization, uh, with product, to avoid using the word consultants. We, we, we don't position ourselves as consultants. We position ourselves really as advisors, as coaches and mentors. And one line that I like to use with a lot of people uh, pretty frequently is it's like, you know, if you've been working for a while, you likely will have worked with some consultants at some point. And there are a lot of really great consultants that are out there. But there are also consultants that have just kind of come in and taken a look at your design, taken a look at what you're working on, and just ripped it to shreds and then kind of said, yeah, all of this is crap and just, I think you should do this instead, and then disappear um, without really any responsibility. Uh, you know, they got they got paid. They, they came and gave you their opinion, and they're gone. And I've tried to position and build up my company to focus more on working collaboratively with our clients and not, and trying to avoid that, that bad taste that you get in your mouth when you end up working with a consultant that when you're at the end, you're like, well, you know, that wasn't really helpful. I just feel bad about myself now. Um, we're really there to be kind of encouraging and supportive. It's, 
not to mean that we're not going to suggest uh, maybe different ways to do things um, and, and more efe efficient ways. I mean, you're using a, uh, an organization or an advisory firm like, like product to be able to take advantage of our 20 some years of experience and, and success, uh, bringing, bringing products to market and building companies that you know, go public and get purchased for you know, huge sums of money. You know, you're, you're, you're paying for that. So you, you want that feedback. Um, but I found that sometimes there's people that just aren't necessarily interested. They want you to really just kind of validate the idea they already have. And so generally, that's been a big challenge for us in, in this, in this uh, new kind of advisory role is to make sure that we're working with resources and, and with teams that want to learn and want to grow and are open-minded to new ideas. I don't care if you don't necessarily do what it is that we think you should do, but you should at least listen. And a lot of times uh, I've found that, you know, one of our challenges is that, you know, sometimes people, they're really just looking for an external validation of what they already have in mind. And they just keep looking until they find someone that will give them that external validation. And, you know, that's not really what I'm interested in doing. I'm, I'm here to help build you as an organization and build you as an engineer and as a leader um, and, and not just to be kind of a, a paid yes man. Um, and so that's been kind of an interesting challenge as well that I've learned. You see that also, obviously, in, in one company uh, type environments. But um, I think you see it a bit more uh, as I've made this pivot into, into the advisory side of things. Yeah. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, two more questions. One of them is not even a real question. So really one more question here. <laughs> have, have you developed any habits over the years uh, that have made you more productive as an engineer, as a leader? Could be a nighttime routine or a checklist when you do a certain type of work, anything like that that you can share? So I think, yeah, I think two ideas. Um, one, there's all sorts of tests you can take, like Myers-Briggs tests and things like that, um, that companies might make you do. And there's all sorts of books you can buy and tests you can take on your own. And a lot of it seems kind of silly, but I do think that there's some value in understanding how you think and how your brain works. Um, I know personally that I best absorb and I can do my most creative thinking when I am uh, drawing it out, right? I'm an engineer, so I have to, I have to draw out sketches uh, on napkins or on any random paper that I have. I like to use envelopes because um, it's just, you know, you get them so many of them in the mail to sketch out ideas as we're having a conversation. I can throw it away later. I don't need it. I'm not doing it for retention purposes to keep the piece of paper. But if I don't sketch it out, if I don't draw a workflow diagram or sketch out some pictures, and it applies to anything. It applies to thinking through human resource aspects of what you're doing, thinking through organizational design, thinking through I'm what this many mechanical engineers, this many electrical engineers, or if you're thinking through a design itself to say, okay, well, how would I, you know, what are different ways for me to make this, to deliver the functionality that's being asked of me as a design engineer? I find that sketching those out uh, and, and drawing pictures allows me to think much more clearly and much more precisely uh, and, and stay focused on that topic. And then I can throw it away um, and I can remember it, I retain it. But if I 
don't sketch it out or if I don't doodle or draw um, those pieces, it's much harder for me to retain that information if you ask me about it a week or two later. Um, if I didn't do that at that activity, it's a little bit harder for me to, to re-engage the neurons and get them firing in, in the right way to bring me back to that topic. Um, so I think understanding kind of how your brain works and knowing, like in my case, I'm a very visual thinker. And so I can visualize things three-dimensionally, which makes it good for mechanical engineering purposes. But for everything else that I do, um, I, I'll give you a really good point. I'm looking at it right now in, in my office. I cover my walls with dry erase boards. And I do that not because I like to take a lot of notes and leave you know, charts up there for myself to be able to follow and check things off. I do it because as I'm talking, me drawing the picture and thinking through even just basic mind maps to say, okay, well, this is, um, this is the client. This is aspects of their, uh, of their downstream uh, aspirations. And so what might be involved in helping them get there, me drawing the picture really allows me to think very clearly about it and, and look for those uh, very subtle idiosyncrasies that might connect to disparate parts um, of, of the system diagram. So that, that's, that's I think that's trick. a huge yeah, point. That's one trick that I've learned. Um, but I want to make sure that it's, a, it's clear that that doesn't work for everyone, right? The, the importance is me eventually learning that I was a visual thinker and and then um, taking full advantage of that. Uh, uh, that's just my, my trick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Learning how you think, I think, is such a critical skill and really kind of hard, actually, to figure that out. Um, for myself, I've learned that the ideas that I come up with uh, when I'm in a quiet room by myself are generally better than the ideas I come up with when I'm in a, a group setting. For whatever reason, uh, that's something I've learned about myself. So I, I agree 100%. It's so important to learn how you think and how your mind yeah. works. I can give you another example of that. Um, one of my children, the youngest, uh, they do their best thinking when they're writing. So if you put paper and pencil in front of them, they can just they could just haul and just start generating page after page after page of written information. Um, and for them, it's that same act of putting the pencil to the paper and writing sentences and just writing out kind of a narrative that allows them to really retain and get deep into the thought. Um, whereas if you had the same conversation with them, it, their retention isn't quite there. Uh, so for them, they're, you know, they, they learn and they process by writing. I learn and process by drawing. Sounds like you do your best thinking and your best processing when you're have quiet and some solitude and, and some empty space to be able to fill with your own things, your own thoughts. Um, I think that's a, it's a really important skill that a lot of engineers would benefit from um, better understanding. Yeah, I, I had a roommate in college who would always turn music on when he was going to sleep, and it drove me crazy because I just it the music would not allow me to go to sleep. I need I crave quiet, which is uh kind of the opposite of what you get when you have three small children, but that's a story for another time. I've got three too, I know what you mean. Yeah. Devin, um, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, well, the easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, through email, and that's just dcc uh, at product.dev, P-R-O-D-C-T dot dev. You can also go to product.dev, uh, product the website, and there's a contact me 
page there. Maybe someday there might be more, but for right now, there's just a contact me. <laughs> uh, and you can also go to my um, my personal kind of online presence, uh, which is devincampbell.com. And that goes into a lot more depth about me, not necessarily product, but me and uh, the many different projects that I'm involved with right now uh, and kind of give you a little bit of a, of a character of who I am and what I focus on, uh, which is what we've tried to build into um, how we've designed and developed product as a as an advisory firm. Terrific, terrific. Thank you for correcting that advisory firm. I, I said consultancy in the beginning. That's okay. My apologies. Okay. Advisory firm, mentors and coaches. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, Devin, uh, I really appreciate you spending some time and just running us through your background and your history, showing, sharing some insight and wisdom with us. So thank you so much yeah, for that. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have been uh, able to have this opportunity. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>